open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 15. Does anyone need a Bible? Don't, don't have one? Alexander, could you run in and grab some off the shelf for me? That'd be great. Grab a handful. Greg, you can help them. Luke 15, last week, Paul preached on Father's Day about our father and about how wonderful he is, in particular, how God's love is not controlling. Everybody remember that who was here last week? How God is the least controlling person that we could ever imagine, which is pretty amazing considering how powerful he is and how screwed up the world is. If he just used a little more of his control, things could be different, but that's not how it works because God created us with free will and he respects our free will. And so he influences us and he moves on us to make the right choices and to do the right things, and we don't always do that. And in Luke 15, we talked last week about the parable of the prodigal son, and that's actually part three of a three-part sermon, nice and Lutheran, right? And so we're going to look at the first two parts now before we get back to the prodigal son. So let's look at Luke 15, verse 1. This gives us a nice context here about what we're, what's going on. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So all the folks that Jesus is trying to reach, they're showing up. And they're coming near and they're hanging out. Not just at services anymore, but eating and fellowshipping and hanging out. And Jesus is actually having a good time with these people. He's not yelling at them and judging them and telling them, by the way, you're evil. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Boo. Boo, Jesus. This is terrible, right? He's eating with sinners. He's eating with tax collectors. The Pharisees can't handle this because their religion was based more on external things than on internal things, right? And Jesus is taking them to task on that all the time. And they don't think it's right to go have a beer with your neighbor to try to fellowship with them and maybe share some of God's love with them. They don't think it's right to invite a family over to your house that isn't a Christian, because what if their kids influence your kids, and that would be so terrible, and ah, somebody might see me. They were very concerned about all that kind of stuff for legitimate reasons that they felt were legitimate and illegitimate ones, and they didn't want to be soiled by the world, and so they stayed separate. Does that sound like anybody, any Christianity that you've ever seen? Because it sounds a lot of like some of the Christianity I've seen. We're going to get soiled by the world, so stay away. Let's cloister ourselves off so that we stay clean and everything will be nice. That's the attitude of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, okay, I would like to tell you a couple stories. So he gives us a couple great analogies that will be familiar to you. And then he goes into the prodigal son. So verse 3. So he told them this parable. So. Starts out with the word so. So he is responding directly to what the Pharisees are thinking and saying. This is a response to them to try to prove that they're wrong. Because they were saying, this man eats with tax gatherers and sinners. How horrible. And so, he taught them this parable. He said, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? So he's saying, which one of you would not do that? The obvious answer is, you would all do that. If you had a hundred sheep, and one of them ran away, or got lost, or got confused, or just isn't here. For some reason, you don't know. Who of you would not leave the well-cared-for sheep with your dog and go off after the one that was lost? 
obviously you would all do that, okay? So the Pharisees are like, yeah, yeah, we would do that, sure. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, I like that picture, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Wouldn't you do that, Jesus is saying? Wouldn't you guys do that if you lost a sheep and then you found it again? You would rejoice with your friends. You would tell everybody. You would be excited. You would be happy because you went to seek that which was lost. Obviously, you would do that. And they're all going, yeah, okay, okay. And then he gives the point, which is verse 7. Just so, so just like that analogy, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. And so he's saying, look, if even one of these people repents and turns to God, there's more joy over that in heaven than all of you who are standing here grumbling about them. See that? That's what he's saying. He's trying to reframe their thinking because their thinking is off. It's totally off. It's totally selfish. We are the important ones. We are the people who follow God. They are evil. They don't matter. We don't like them. Okay? We go on internet forums and tell them how sinful they are. And Jesus is like, nope, this is important. This is why I'm here. Any thoughts or questions on that passage? So he leaves the 99, he goes after the one. That's the heart of God. He's always pursuing us. He's always pursuing the lost. And he continues to pursue us after we're found. He never stops pursuing us, seeking after us, reaching out to us. Because that is who he is. That's his heart. That's not how we are very often, but it's how Jesus is. Verse 8, or, so he's going to give another example, another story, another analogy, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Obviously, you do that. Coins were very valuable back then. It was rare for a normal common person to have very many coins, because you had to spend them as soon as you got them on food and on life, because a lot of these folks were very poor. But she had one of these. Who knows why? She was saving up for something. Maybe it was an inheritance for her kids. Who knows? But she has a coin. She lost it. This is a big problem. If you woke up and you checked your bank account and one of them was empty, you would freak out, right? This would be a problem. You would go down to the bank. You would talk to the manager. You would figure out what happened to my money. Okay? So that's what's happening here. She lost it. And Jesus is saying, which one of you would not diligently seek to find that? You would keep seeking and seeking and seeking and looking until you found it, and you would never give up until you found it. And then when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. So same as the last passage, right? You find that which was lost after searching and searching, and then you call everybody together, you rejoice, everybody's happy with you, for you. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the point of this story is exactly the same as the previous one. That God is relentlessly pursuing lost people. Yes, he cares about the fellowship of faith. He cares about us. He continues to pursue us. He never stops doing that. But he also has a heart to find the lost. And I think that's true for those who haven't received Christ at all. It's also true for those who have but have sort of walked away. It's true for those who have just kind of gotten lazy or gotten distracted. We all do that, right? We all get a little lost, get a little confused, lose sight just a little bit of where the shepherd is at. 
of where God is at. That happens. It's called life. And Jesus never stops pursuing us. The love of the Father is so strong, he keeps seeking, diligently seeking, to find what is lost. And then, of course, we get to the parable of the prodigal son, which is part three of the sermon, and the point is exactly the same as the previous two. That heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents more than the church service that you guys have. Now, again, the church service is important. It's good. I'm glad we're all here. But we can't lose sight of the fact that if we are Christ's body on earth, we need to be reaching out to the lost. We need to be praying for the lost. We need to be praying for the prodigals. We need to be praying for one another that the times where we get lost and get distracted, that we'll turn back, that we'll be found. Okay, now, when, obviously, when Je- this is a metaphor. When Jesus is, when God is seeking that which is lost, it's not like he doesn't know where it is. Right? God knows where everyone is. But because he respects our free will, he doesn't find us, walk up to us and be like, tch, tch, believe. It doesn't work that way. And so when it says they were lost and then they were found, that means they submitted to the Spirit of God. They surrendered to him and said, yes, I need you. I am lost. I need to be found. And he never stops that pursuit all our life. So the prodigal son, we talked about that a little bit last week. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But you know the story. The kid says, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I've been waiting for a while, and you just keep living, and it's bugging me. I want my money. Give me my money, because I'm out of here. Okay? Not good. Not nice. Not respectful. In, in the Jewish culture, in that context, again, he's talking to the Pharisees, this kid, and we don't know if he's a kid, he's, he's a man, he doesn't seem to be married, so he's probably not all that old, but we don't know how old he is. He's probably old enough to know better than this. <laughs> okay? But something got messed up in his relationship with his father growing up, and he got really entitled. He didn't appreciate what he had. He didn't appreciate his father or their relationship. And so he is renouncing his own father. He's renouncing his family. He's renouncing his his Israelite heritage. He's renouncing his God and his faith, and he's moving to a pagan country. That's how they would have viewed this story, okay? The Pharisees and scribes who were listening. This guy is renouncing everything that is important to us. He's a total traitor. The worst of the worst in the Pharisees' minds, is this guy. So he goes off, squanders all his money on reckless living. We can insert in the blank there what that might mean. Not smart things, okay? And then he spent everything. He ran out. There's a famine. He doesn't have any more money. He ends up having to work. Oh, no. And nobody would give him a job because he's a foreigner. He's a Jew. They hate him just as much as he hates them. Because racism is an endemic problem in the United States, but it's also an endemic problem in humanity and always has been. Okay? And so there's hatred, and so they're like, this will be funny. Watch this. I'll let you feed the pigs, knowing that Jews can't touch pigs, let alone hang out in the pig pen and feed them. And so they're like, this is going to be great. Watch this. I'll let you feed the pigs. That's it. Otherwise, you can starve. And so he does it because he's dying. He's starving. He, he, he has to have food. And so he's in this humiliation. And the Pharisees at this point are loving this part of the sermon. They're like, this is good. This guy's a traitor and he's getting his comeuppance. The worst possible comeuppance. Cosmically hilarious. He's got nothing and no one. And he's sitting in pig filth. Unclean in every sense. Pharisees are like, yeah. He gets what he deserves. And then Jesus messes them up. 
And it says in verse 17, when he came to himself, he realized that he had it better at his father's house. I like that phrase. He came to himself. Like there was something else other than him controlling him or influencing him or covering his eyes so that he couldn't see. He was being deceived. He was literally led astray by the enemy by making all those choices, and he couldn't see reality. He wasn't smart. Have you ever tried to reason with someone who's a prodigal? It doesn't work, usually. No matter any kind of reason you try to give them, they're like, whatever, whatever, because you know, they can't see. When you're blind, you can't see. That's the problem. When you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, or it wouldn't be being deceived, right? And you're just choosing to believe a lie, which is weird. People do that, I guess, but this guy is deceived. And all of a sudden, the veil comes off. He's, he's reached his bottom. He's been humbled and crushed and humiliated to the point where he looks around and he said, holy cow, even the worst servants in my dad's house have it better off than this. And he realizes, what? Holy pig, he may have said that. Or unholy pig, even my father's servants had it better than this. Okay? I like that. And so... He says, all right, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to go back to dad, and I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be your son. I realize that, but please let me be one of your servants because I'm starving here. And he just hopes that his dad would have that much mercy. So I think he's really repentant, okay? He is a, he is a sinner who's repenting. He, in this case, I don't think it was a lost person being found. It was a person who was probably found and then ran away and needed to be found again. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about losing your salvation here or whatever. That's another Sunday. But this is someone we know, right? We all know this person. Many of us know multiple people <laughs> who are like this. Maybe not this extreme, maybe more extreme, but we all know this person. And so he comes back, and we get to verse 20. And Paul talked last week about the uncontrolling father, how he's let the kid take the money. Isn't that interesting? I don't think most of us would do that. If the kid is like, I'm out of here, man. Give me my inheritance. We'd be like, no. But God is so uncontrolling, and his love is so reckless that he made that reckless decision. And he said, all right, if, if you're going to go, go. That's a reckless decision. Most of us would be like, uh, that's unwise, and we might have good reasons for that. But that's the decision God made, and it makes us think, doesn't it? What is that about? Because that's what God does. All, all the parables are trying to teach us important truths about God, usually while showing us some truths about ourselves, right? And this is one of the important truths about God, that he loves recklessly, and he never stops pursuing. We get to verse 20 here, John 15, verse 20. This is probably my favorite verse in the Bible. It's talking about the father, and he arose, or the son at first, and he rose and came to his father. So he leaves that pig pen, he heads towards home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How could his father have seen him while the kid was still a long way off? He was sitting on the porch looking down the road. That's the only way. The kid's far off down the road, and he probably sees dust. 
because this is dry, deserty Israel, right? Probably see some dust up there on the path coming down the hill. From a long way off, he sees that. How? Because he was sitting there looking. He was waiting for the sun the whole time. I think that's the point of this story. The old man was waiting for the kid the whole time, looking down the road, hoping, praying, waiting for him to come back. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him because he was looking. He never stopped pursuing. He never stopped trying to reach out to this kid. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion. Paul talked about that last week. Compassion means to suffer with someone else. He saw him and he felt what this kid must have been feeling, what he must have been going through. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And that running is a big deal, okay? That's another reckless move by this guy. You don't, old men don't run in Jewish culture. It's inappropriate. It's undignified, right? You're, you're an elder now. You, you act elderly in the best possible sense, okay? You certainly don't run. That's just not appropriate in that culture. And this is like the lord of the manor, the big guy, the boss man, okay? And this old dude is sprinting down the road after this kid who betrayed him and abandoned him. And he just runs after this kid. And that's God for us. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. This is the heart of the Father. The moment we turn back, he is off down the road coming to us. That is his heart. And so this old man throws caution to the wind, and he acts very undignified in running up to this kid. It reminds me of the story of David. Do you remember David when the Philistines sacked Jerusalem, took the Ark of the Covenant, ran off because there was some sin and, and problems in land. David repents. He goes after the Ark of the Covenant. He gets it, and he brings it back to Jerusalem, and he is celebrating. He is so happy. He is dancing for joy, and it's Israel. It's hot. He starts taking clothes off. Eventually, he's down to his short pants, and he's still dancing and praising God just in the full moment of worship, and that sounds a little undignified, right? That's a little reckless. That's a little out there. And his wife, Michael, who is Saul's daughter, she saw this from the palace window, and she took major offense to this. She was like, holy cats or holy pigs. That is the most inappropriate thing I've ever seen. You're the king. You can't act this way. This is horrible. This is horrible, the most undignified thing I've ever seen. And David is like, I was in the presence of God, and I'm following him, and we got the ark back. I'll become even more undignified than this is what David says. I love that line. I'll be even more indignified than this. I will humiliate myself for the sake of God, is what David says. It's amazing. And so this father is doing that same thing, that same heart. And he is willing to humiliate himself in front of all his servants, in front of his own son. And he runs up to him. He embraces him right away. He doesn't even listen to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. So he doesn't walk up to him slowly and be like, so... Didn't go so well, did it? I told you so. Remember that? I did. So now what do you want, my one-time son? What do you expect from me? What do you think you deserve? That's how we think. 
right? That's not the father in the story. That's not the father God. He runs. He embraces. He kisses. He doesn't care what the kid has to say. He starts his prepared speech, right? Father, I've sinned before heaven, before you. And the dad cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish. He's like, whatever. Servants, go get me the robe to put on him to show that he is important and valued. Get the ring, that family ring that he tossed at my feet when he left, probably. Put it back on his finger, showing that he is my son. Again, he is part of this family. Grab the sandals, put them on his feet, because servants didn't wear shoes. Men and women of the household wore shoes. He wanted everybody to know, this kid's not, I'm not taking him back as a servant. I'm taking him back as my son. And there's a big difference between the two. It's important for us to know that we are the child, not the servant. We serve God. Even the prince or the princess serves the king, right? But we are children, not hired hands. Jesus is clear about that over and over again. That's who we are. And so this is God the Father to us, running after us, embracing us, putting all these things on us. That's reckless. That's, in many people's opinion, unwise. What if this kid goes and pawns off the road to go on a night of whoring? He might, but that's not dumb. God the Father's not stupid. He knows we might screw up again. He knows the kid might go pawn that robe. He gives it to him anyway. He knows the kid doesn't deserve the ring. He, you, you renounce this family. Doesn't matter. He gives it to him anyway. That's reckless, isn't it? God does not think the way we think. God does not love the way we love. Do you see this? It's, it's, it bothers us. <laughs> it's troubling. But I got to believe that the way God loves is better than the way we love. And I'm not saying that in all times, for all circumstances, this is how any father should behave. Obviously, life presents different circumstances. But this is the heart of God. This is his reckless love. This is what agape looks like. It is unconditionally forgiving. The kid just walked back into the yard, and he was already fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully reinstated to the highest position he could possibly have. Immediately. Is God awesome or what? This, whenever I study this, I'm like, this is nuts. This is ridiculous kind of love. It's ridiculous, really. From our point of view, this seems ridiculous. It seems unwise. But that recklessness that God has, that's a part of who he is, and it's a part of his love, and that's who the Father is, and he reaches out, and he never stops pursuing, and he never stops receiving us back. Um, grab your lyric sheet, and of course then, in this passage, he says, go kill, kill the kid, or the fatted calf, and we're going to celebrate for what was lost has been found. Again, the same exact thing as in the previous two analogies, right, of the lost coin and the lost sheep. It's the same story, just given much better characters, <laughs> much more fleshed out. That's why I love this passage so much. Jesus is a good writer, as it turns out. We're still talking about this. It's still blowing people away 2,000 years later. It's one of the greatest stories ever. And that's the heart of God. He celebrates when we turn back to him. And let, let's look at, I want to just read the words of the song, Reckless Love, that we sang earlier. It's on the back of your lyric sheet. Uh, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. That, that refers to the fact that 
God chose us and thought of us long before we even existed. Paul says, from before the foundation of the world, Christ died for us. This was decided before the world was even created, that he would be pursuing us. That's how long Jesus has been pursuing us, since before creation. That's a long time. And he will never stop pursuing us, including, I believe, through eternity in heaven. I believe God will continue to pursue us with his love. And that that's part of what eternity is going to be about. About enjoying and experiencing God's love more and more and more and more forever. That's what I personally believe. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. Again, God is thinking of us before we think of him. This is called grace. He chose us first. This is not about lost becoming found by saying, you know, you have reasoned well with me. I will choose to become a Christian now. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about God saying, you are mine. You might not know it yet, but you're mine and I've chosen you and I'm never going to stop seeking you. I'm never going to stop trying to get you. Second verse. I like this so much. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. Somebody had a word similar to that earlier. When I was fighting against you, you didn't fight back. And how often do we do this? And I don't just mean lost people not being saved and railing against God. I mean in our normal life. No, I'm not going to let him be the Lord of my finances. I'm the one who works hard. It's my money. I'm not going to let Jesus be the Lord in that area of my life or with my decisions with my kids or with my job or whatever it is. And whether we know it or not, we resist the Lord in a certain area. We become his foe in that area saying, no, I'm not doing this. I'm against you. Or maybe something happens in our life and we're just like, I I'm not with the whole God thing right now. He and I aren't speaking well because uh, he made me mad. Paul, I think it was Paul. We shared something about that earlier. We go through this in our life, right? I think we've all experienced being God's foe. And when we fight against God, he doesn't fight back. Thank God. Or we'd be Im immediately obliterated, right? When I was your foe, even so, your love fought for me. So it's like a little kid who's railing against you and beating on your thigh saying, I want that cookie or whatever it is. And you're calming them and saying, it's okay. It's going to be fine. You're not fighting back, arguing and yelling at them, trying to beat them into submission until they stop wanting cookies. Because it's not their fault they want cookies. Cookies are awesome. I would eat cookies all the time. When I was your foe, your love fought for me. God is fighting for us even when we're against him. What? That is craziness. And no matter how hard we're fighting against him or resisting him in our heart, he is still working to get around that and under it and over it to figure out how to get us over it <laughs> so that we can give that area of our life to him so that we can stop fighting. Amen? That's who God is. His love never stops fighting for us. It never stops pursuing us no matter what. And sometimes it's very reckless. But that's who he is. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. Oftentimes when we come to ourselves, like the prodigal son did, and we realize what we've been doing, we realize we've been fighting against God in some way. We realize that, oh, he is God of all that I have. Because all that I have was given by God. So of course he's God of my money. 
And when we get that conviction, sometimes we can feel worthless. I'll, I'll ask, anybody ever felt worthless before the Lord? I think we all have from time to time, right? We're just like, oh, man. Maybe, maybe it's just reading these passages and realizing God's love is so much bigger than us. I really stink. Okay? We all come to times where we feel worthless. That means we have no worth. We're worth zero. Okay? The word worth or value means someone, what someone is willing to pay for something. This iPhone is worth a certain amount of money because someone would be willing to pay that much money for it. That's what worth means, right? We feel no worth. We feel we're worth this. And while in the midst of that, he paid it all for us. He gave Jesus, who is of how much worth? Infinite worth. And he paid the price of Jesus for us. Therefore, ascribing or attributing unlimited value and worth to us. So we think we're worth zero, and he's like, you're worth infinity to me. We don't deserve that. But that's who he is. That's what he does. Overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. I love that analogy. It chases me down. He never stops chasing us down. Through rivers, through valleys, up mountains, no matter what. He is chasing us down. He fights until he finds us. So we come to ourselves, whatever the case may be. He leaves the 99. So there, there's the direct quote from Luke 15. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. That's God. He's always giving. No matter what we deserve, he is giving. He is loving. He is pursuing. He is reaching out. And it's not just for lost people and prodigals, but it's for them too, obviously. But it's also for us all the time. And this is what I've been realizing lately, is that he is always pursuing us with his love. Constantly. The better we are, the more we get closer to God, the more mature we get, his love is still pursuing us just as much. We just become a little more aware of it, maybe. And we realize how hard he's chasing after us to always bring us closer to him, to always help us to receive more of his love. When I read this passage and other passages like this, I, I have this sense of awe just about who God is, or what he's like, what he does, how different I am from that. I want to have this kind of love. I want to have this love for other people. I want to have that kind of heart that can forgive instantly. I want to have that kind of heart that will keep chasing after people and not get frustrated. And when people yell at me or slap me in the face, that I'll pray for them and I'll keep pursuing them instead of being like, well, fine. Because God never says that. He never gives up. And I do. <laughs> I do. I don't want to. I want to have this kind of love. And in order to do that, we have to receive more of the love of God, right? Because human love cannot be this way. This reckless love is something we can't do. We can't manufacture this. This is nuts. It sounds romantic. There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down or lie you won't tear down coming after me. That sounds nice and romantic, and it, it is. And the world wants that kind of love, but we don't actually find it because we can't do that. We can maybe do it once, but we can't keep it up. Only with the love of God in us can we love that way. Only through the love of God can we love other people. And so if we want to be more like this, if we want to live more in the love of God and learn how to be this reckless, then we need to first receive 
more of the Father's love for us. Because it's with that love that we give out to other people. Amen? It's with that same love that we love back on God. So God gives it to us, we give it back to God and to other people. And God gives it to us and we give it back to other people. It's like Luke 11 when he asks us, teach us how to pray. And the guy goes to his neighbor and asks for bread to give to his friend. It's the same analogy. It's what revival means. We go get stuff from God and we bring it to other people. So we need to receive more of God's love if we're going to give more out. Because that's what it takes. It takes agape and we only get it from him. Any of you parents ever give your kids money to buy you a present? Or give your kids money to buy mom a present or whatever? That is a godly thing. That is the exact picture of God and his love. He gives us everything so that we can give it back to him. It's beautiful. And I don't know about you, but I, when I read this, I realize I need more. I need more of the love of God than I have. Let's close our eyes and work to receive some more of this love. God doesn't just jam it down our throats. We have to ask. We have to receive this love. He's pursuing us. We don't have to find him. We don't have to beg him. He's already chasing us down because he never stops that. Okay? But we do need to stop and turn around and receive what it is he's trying to give us to receive his love. Father, help us during those times when we are more focused on what we're doing or on our own lives than focused on you. We want to have this kind of love. We want to receive it and live in it and rejoice with you in it. And we also want to show it to other people. So Lord, teach us, we ask, how to receive your love better every day. And I pray that you'd start right now. I pray that you'd start right now. Faith requires action, or it's dead. It's not just belief or agreement. Faith requires action. And so as an action this morning, if you want to receive more of God's love, and that's a desire of your heart right now, I'm going to ask you to perform the action of just standing up and holding out your hands. And maybe you're, you're, not, you're honestly like, you know, I don't really want to receive more of God's love right now for some reason. But maybe you could say, God, help me want to want to receive more of your love. Help me take at least that step. And no one's going to judge you whether you stand or not. This is a safe place. It's just everybody spending time with the Lord right now. Let's take a minute just to receive the love of God. Father, we confess that we don't know how to love the way you love. We confess that 
it's hard to even comprehend the way that you love. But Lord, we'd like to. We'd like to love the way you love. So we ask you to shed out, pour out your love into our hearts. Teach us how to be better, Lord, at turning around, at being found to a God who always pursues. Teach us how to receive your love better every day and right now. I believe there's a special grace here this morning to receive the love of God. The love of God is, for some of you, the breakthrough that you've been looking for in your life or in your situation. It's just receiving more of the love of God and learning to abide in that. And I think there's a special grace to receive his love this morning. And so if you reach out your heart to him, he's going to fill you. You might feel it, you might not. That's not what's important. We know by faith that he pours his love into our hearts. So Lord, we receive from you. Father, we thank you for that love.